where we partner with clients and where I see the opportunity is for financial brands is you've got to start by being willing to completely own the current set of circumstances, the current set of challenges, as frustrating or disappointing or embarrassing as they may be, we have to start by accepting them. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights series, where James Robert Lay interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello, I am James Robert Lay and welcome to episode 289 of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome Tim Hamilton to the show. Tim is the CEO of Praxent, a digital innovation agency that designs and develops frictionless digital experiences for financial brands. Tim is also a fellow Texan who is right up the road from me in Austin, and he founded Praxit almost 23 years ago on the belief that technology has the power to unlock human potential. And I agree. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about today to empower you, to guide you, dear listener, along your own journey of growth at your bank, at your credit union, or at your fintech, because Tim and I are going to dive deep into the growth opportunities found within verticalized solutions that embedded commercial banking apps have for specific niche markets. Welcome to the show, Tim. It is good to share time with you today, buddy. You too, James. That was quite an intro. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to geeking out together. Well, we've already been geeking out before we hit record on a lot of other topics, so I'm going to have to stay very focused and not let my ADD mind just drift too far (laughs) off because, you know, it's an important subject, unlocking growth opportunities within niche markets. It's a personal passion topic of mine, particularly when when framed around empowering and leveling up small to mid-sized businesses as an entrepreneur myself. But before we do that, What is good in your world right now, personally or professionally? It is always your pick to get started off on a positive note. I'm just feeling really proud of our team for wrapping up a great 2022. Um, We just just kind of uh, reconciled the books and put all these numbers to paper. We we picked up 28 new clients last year, which was a record for us, and managed a portfolio of about 51 projects in total. Um, Our Glassdoor um, scorecard ticked up to a 4.9 out of five star. And so culture and team health, as well as you know, client satisfaction are two critical measures of, uh, of success for me. And I'm just really proud of our team and very grateful to our friends and the FinTech community and our incredible clients for supporting and encouraging our, our growth. Absolutely. And I think you're, you know, you're, you're, you're onto something here when you're talking about culture and growth, it's all about people. That was one of the things that that, that caught me is, is, is when you started Praxin almost 23 years ago, you did so in the belief that technology has the power to unlock human potential. And I want to go back in time to just set some context for the dear listener here because it was around this time that I was also founding what would become the Digital Growth Institute. So we, we might have been have living these parallel lives. Um, <laughs> let's, go, let's go back, early 2000s. What was your inspiration 
for getting this started back then? Gosh, I, um, I have had so many mentors, incredible mentors along the way that I got to give them credit, James, for, for getting me up and running my, you know, my, my, my first mentor is my, my tennis coach in high school who actually hired me to build him a, a website and help him to launch his tennis academy. Uh, as any good tennis coach would, this tennis coach, Jesse, uh, asked me where I, you know, where I wanted to take this and uh, encouraged me to just keep on keeping on. I was 16, 17 years old, and that's where I, I started. My next mentor was from Arthur Anderson, later uh, Accenture, and um, he, he wrote business simulations and agent-based models to help uh, large corporations and, and mid-market firms to solve really impossibly complex business challenges and make uh, in, in almost impossibly complicated business decisions using computer simulation. And so we would simulate different scenarios, A, B, and C, and, and then inform those strategic business decisions accordingly. The third mentor I want to give credit to is Tori Gaddis. He came from McKinsey, and he really taught me that progressive leadership and creating a, an innovation of culture, he really introduced me to the early ideas of, of employee-centered and uh, customer-centered uh, business management, though they weren't called that at the time. He was the first person in 2006 and seven to really introduce me to those concepts. And that those three mentors really set my direction in the business and inspired me to just keep on going, making this thing as good as it possibly could be. I always was committed to professional services. I've always loved solving complicated projects, problems. Um, I had a mentor say, you know, you may not be a product entrepreneur, but you, you really do seem to have a passion for services. And so that's how I got my start and you know, what I've been doing for the past 23 years. You know, as you're going through that, you're taking me back. You went to the University of Texas. I went to the University of Houston, but I had a friend uh, who went to Baylor University, and we both graduated at the same time, turn of the, the millennium. We both graduated in 2000 from high school, and so we were freshmen uh, in college. And he called me up one day, this, this idea of, of, of service and solving problems. And he said, you know that college bookstore I'm like yeah that's annoying you pay $300 for a book and they'll buy it back for like $10 the economics just they don't work out for a student he said why don't we build something that bypasses the bookstore and so this was back in 2001 2002 and so we built what became bear swap it was bearswap.com Baylor University the Baylor Bears and it was through that. It was built on like ASP.net and the Microsoft Access Database. I mean, really oh, incredible. Really early on. But <laughs> what, what I saw, and, and that's why I wanted to start here, is this idea of using technology to unlock human potential. The idea of using technology to connect people together with people. Because we grew an audience of 10, 15,000 students. And then I'm like, wow we're going to take this to other universities and it's going to, you know, it's going to be great. Well, a little bit, you know, flash forward a couple of years and you got this other guy out of Harvard who's thinking way bigger about using the internet to connect people together. Um, and as you're going through your, your journey here and your mentors, what have been the big lessons that you've learned along the way yourself when it comes to using technology to connect people together with people to use technology to unlock human human potential what an amazing question I, I some of the best thinking i've ever come up, come upon in this uh area or in, in this topic 
is um, from the authors of the Blue Ocean Strategy. And, and, and that book really hit me between my wow. eyes and has really made a lasting impact on my career. The thesis of the book basically is that firms can play uh, strategy defensively, assuming that the rules of the game are set. And then they bend themselves to those rules and they stick to the rules. And what you see is sameness. You see a bunch of competitors competing al along the same lines of competition, what the authors call value dimensions, mm -hmm. where they say, you know what, what the customer really wants from us is a lower price, you know, greater productivity, higher convenience, a nice selection of products. Um, consider, you know, variety, but whether it's whether, whether you're shopping for a hotel room, a rental car or an airplane ticket, there are these six or seven dimensions of value. And you can play that game defensively, again, assuming the rules are set, or as Blue Ocean Strategy encourages, you can play it offensively, where you basically change the rules of competition. And there's some amazing innovations, like Nintendo, when they mm -hmm. were up against PlayStation and Xbox, what they did was so courageous and counterintuitive uh, that it... it is one of the best case studies of this idea. They underperformed uh, PlayStation and Xbox intentionally by installing a sub-performing video card and graphic system into their hardware. They spent a significant, they, they cut the, the price significantly. Um, and then they, they targeted a non-video game enthusiast market with their products, with the Wii Fit, you know, and the Wii Sports yes. games. They, they were going after grandparents who wanted to have an, an, a nice memory with their grandkids. And so there are two ideas there is like, look critically at the value dimensions of the market you're serving and don't take them for granted. Yeah. Don't assume that because PlayStation and Xbox are packing their hardware with the latest GPUs that you have to as well. And don't assume that because PlayStation and Xbox are going after the hardcore gaming enthusiasts that you have to as well. To wrap that up, um, sameness is not strategy. Strategy is inherently the art of exclusion. We have to be different. To be different, we have to be bold. And as um, Frances Fry writes beautifully in her book, Uncommon Service, um, most firms, by trying to be great at everything, and for everyone, end up in exhausted mediocrity. And that is one of the most compelling ideas, James, I have ever come upon um, around how you can leverage effectively, how you can leverage technology to bring people together and solve real problems that exist in the life of your customers and prospects. Just like people feel stressed about money, we understand digital growth can also feel confusing frustrating and overwhelming. But it doesn't have to feel this way for you because you can join the Digital Growth University to gain clarity through education, to overcome the fear of the unknown. Build your team's courage with a growth strategy to eliminate the fear of change and increase your confidence with coaching to remove the fear of failure. Visit digitalgrowth.com university to apply. As you're going through that, you're taking me back to reading the book, and it was a transformative book for, for myself as well. Um, the idea of competing around commoditization, you know, the bloodied red waters of competition versus seeing things differently than how others might see them, um, being bold, 
having the courage to go down a different path. It was almost like the Robert Frost poem, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And I took the one less traveled and that has made all the difference. I looked at that poster as a freshman in high school and I was like, you know, one path went to the left and one path went to the right. But my curious mind was like, well, what's down the middle? Like, there's nothing there. Let's go, let's go down the middle through the thicket and I bet you we can find something even cooler that way, something way more powerful, way more meaningful. And as you're going through the PlayStation and the Nintendo example, I'm thinking, tying this back here to financial services, change is always bringing new opportunities when we're open to see these opportunities. What do you think limits the vision limits the perspective of financial brand leaders as we're now entering into an entirely new age of technology. Some call it web 3.0, some call it the age of AI. What, what, what holds financial brand leaders back from seeing new potential? And then I want to talk about some of this potential that you see here in just a bit. I, I recently came upon a book called Designing Your Life, uh, written by uh, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. And they're using design thinking, um, the principles of design thinking to help people who are in a life rut. Maybe they're, they're questioning their, their career path or they're looking to uh, find greater meaning on, on their journey. Incredibly, the first step in their um, process, in their design thinking your life process, James, is the word accept. That was such a surprising word choice for me mm. in a seven part, you know, seven step framework to improving your current situation. It just really, it jumped right off the page, except is the first step. Now, um, they went further to explain that they said, you cannot solve a problem you're not willing to own. Mm. And that's where I want to kick off with where we partner with clients and where I see the opportunity is for financial brands is you've got to start by being willing to completely own the current set of circumstances, the current set of challenges as frustrating or disappointing or embarrassing as they may be. We have to start by accepting them. You know, one of the things we often encourage our new clients and partners to do is to start with a very small scale customer research project. You know, let's interview four, five, six, ten, or fifteen customers, or lost prospects, or potential customers, longtime customers. Let's let's thoughtfully design that cohort and go in and ask them some qualitative research questions to understand the problem from their vantage point. One of the major issues I talk a lot about in financial services is that we have really built the technology of the financial stack from a systems-centered point of view. We need to change that, or we yeah. are changing it. It's very exciting to see the progress. We are changing it into a human-centered technology stack, but we can't do that right. if we don't accept the challenges and the circumstances, and we don't, we cannot do it if we don't engage the very people we need to recenter this world on in conversation. Um, now, there's a fallacy around that. If I ask them, they will leave. If I ask my customers, they're going to quit me. I will bring into their conscious mind all the disappointments or frustrations 
or irritations that they've experienced with me and my brand in the past 18 months. That is a fallacy, but it's a universal fear that many of our prospects and customers experience. It's a lot of resistance they have to doing customer research. I wanna pause right there because I think you're onto something and I wanna dive deeper into this, why? You know, one of the things that I've written a lot about are the what I call the four fears. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of change. It's the fear of failure. And sometimes it's the fear of success. Now, as you're talking through going in and doing this research study and, and, and going all in on people, which is a framework or an acronym to where you can ask really good questions, listen to what they're saying, but also then just learn through observation because what people say and what people actually do sometimes is, is different. What's the fear here? Like you said, we might be surfacing all of the pain that people feel from the past now in the present moment, and that's going to have a negative impact going forward into the future, but you're saying no, because it's almost like that's the fear of the unknown, and maybe maybe it's a fear of failure too. Like we have failed these people, but you're saying we can, we can gain a lot from this. A hundred percent. The fear is that perhaps the, the sense of disappointment or the pain that we've caused customers in the past is somehow uh, unconscious. It's, it's, it, they're not conscious to that. And that by uh, asking them or causing them to dwell on this for just a moment, all of a sudden that pain is going to go from being unconscious to conscious and they will then vote with their feet. Yeah. Now we, we almost never see that that's the case. What we see again and again and again is that customers now um, they replace their sense of disappointment or frustration or exasperation with a bad uh, customer experience in the in the in the past, and they and they replace that with a sense of optimism, hope, and admiration. Even when that very company engages them now in a in a conversation uh, focused on improvements, um, that it, it turns out is one of the most motivating things for for people generally is this this idea of the progress principle. Yeah. The best way to motivate a cohort, an audience of people, whether they are on your team as employees or as customers, is to give them the felt sense that if I stick around just a little bit longer, things around here are going to improve. And what more could we want from our financial institutions? You know, like that's really all we could expect. And in many ways, the the knowledge of the, the past, the known evil, quote unquote, is, is, is many times safer than the unknown uh, unknown. And so pair the known quantity with a commitment to improve and make progress. Well, that is a very sticky you know, uh, place to build and improve on a relationship with our customers. And there's so many opportunities to do that within financial services. I'm a big believer in one of the big things that I teach and coach with financial brands and their teams. Progress is exponentially far greater than perfection. Um, I think it particularly in this world that we're living in, um, you know, where if you think historically about financial services, you would go and when it comes to growth, you'd go, you'd build a physical branch location and that would have some research tied to it, you know, site placement, et cetera. But once that branch was finished, it was finished. Now, digitally, when we're talking about experiences, we can continuously be learning, gaining feedback on not what we can do better, I think the, the better way to frame the question or the perspective here is what can we do even better? And it's by adding that one word, even, it, we're paying homage to the past. Like, we only knew what we knew to get to the point to where we're at today. Now we have this new knowledge. We can apply this new knowledge going forward to be even better, to create even more value 
for our customers. And one of the opportunities that, that you see from your perspective is instead of looking you know, at the generalized banking solutions for small businesses within a standalone banking portal, you believe that future growth and value can be unlocked through the lens of verticalized solutions, perhaps even creating blue ocean opportunities that embed banking within apps that target specific niche markets, lawyers, veterinarian offices, dentists. I mean, the, it, it truly is an exponential growth opportunity if we just take a moment just to kind of pause and think about that. But why? Why is this? Where's, where is your perspective around this coming from? That's exactly right, James. There are several trends that are emerging uh, that led me to conclude that 2023, 2024, I think is a really exciting time to start making moves in this direction. The first one is the interest rate environment. As we all know, there's a war among banks and credit unions for deposits. Mm -hmm. We are now in a, in a profitable lending environment again. The challenge is keeping up and maintaining that balance sheet. Um, in the past, serving small business customers uh, has not been all that attractive. They're very needy and they have complicated needs, more complicated than consumers. However, they aren't very much more profitable than an average consumer. Um, I do think, however, that with the right focus, the right groups of small business customers, um, we can actually uh, gain and start to, to build up those balance sheets, gain those deposits at a faster clip than we could by focusing on consumers. And so for, for, the, for the banks, I think small businesses are attractive for that reason. On the small business side, um, what I see is that the enterprise software as a service industry is maturing. You know, SaaS is, is almost, the, the phrase SaaS is gonna turn 20 uh, here in a couple of years, right? So it's maturing. It's Don't very, remind very, me, uh, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, James. I'm right there with you. Um, but as that category, as that industry matures, it's very rare to find one or even two uh, enterprise SaaS companies focused on a particular niche. We're seeing three, four, five, six, ten, 10, or 15, yeah. depending on the size of that total addressable market. Now, as we know, uh, as markets mature, they seek ways to differentiate. As we were talking at the very top of the call, we can play strategy defensively and accept the rules of the game. And in mm -hmm. this case, that would mean enterprise software as a service company is just continuing to compete on price, contract terms, features, or we can compete offensively. And that's where I think that um, the enterprise SaaS industry is going to go. Increasingly, we're going to see mashups and um, we're going to see embedded finance and interchange uh, based business models coming in and disrupting or upending, differentiating enterprise, long established enterprise solutions that are built for particular verticals. And so you mentioned, you know, veterinarian offices or law firms. I think that's a great place to start. Consider the financial needs that those businesses have. Law firms, for example, have to manage utilization, billable utilization. They've got to generate invoices. They've got to process payments every two weeks, every, every, uh, every one month. They've got payroll processing they've got to do. Um, they've even got professional advancement. As that law firm grows, you've got to provide a path to partner for other mm -hmm. people. And then you've got to process distributions. There's so many ways for us to imagine innovative value propositions and uh, an enterprise SaaS solution built specifically for law firms to manage all of these concerns. Um, and, and, by creating a partnership 
between a sponsor bank and the right enterprise SaaS company, all these value propositions can come to life, which is one of the reasons why we are so excited about the sponsor banking movement that's unfolding. Yes. Um, and you know, see, see the incredible opportunities that exist for banks specifically within SMB. I have written extensively about this. This was a key part of banking on digital growth. Um, I've done a lot of keynotes on the subject here, which is like I said, just to begin this conversation, it's, it's a personal passion topic of mine because when you help these organizations grow, you as a financial brand are going to grow as a result of that. It's, it's kind of like this win, win, win. I mean, we're all we're all getting better together. A rising tide lifts all ships. Could not agree more, James. I think a huge opportunity still for for more banks to get into the sponsor banking game and to do so with you know conscientiousness and uh, the right the right compliance team just to ensure that we're not um, we're not doing so recklessly. Dave Mayo and the folks over at the the Bankers Helping Bankers, yep. the Bass Association. And are a great place to get started. And also, they're they're talking a lot about how to do this responsibly. Mm-hmm. I think it does it does represent a huge opportunity. But but as we all know, we need to do it responsibly to ensure that you know we're we're staying compliant. I think one great way to do that is to focus your sponsor banking strategy to begin with. For example, you know we talked about uh, law firms and dentist offices. That could be a way to begin. Focus on. SM uh, service-based SMP businesses or professional services-based SMB businesses. You could even focus on high-risk uh, businesses, business categories. That's a topic that comes up an awful lot. You could instead decide to focus specifically on, you know, uh, low-risk, you know, CPG or e-commerce or DTC brands, direct-to-consumer brands yep. that that uh, that want to embed. Uh, a financial value proposition into their into their ban- brand, but by focusing in this way, you could reduce the the amount of complexity and variability that you're you're offloading to your compliance team, and instead, by serving the same kind of customers, you could start to accumulate expertise within that business vertical. And you know what happens when you build expertise? People start sharing your knowledge. They start linking to you, inviting you to speak pulling you into their conversations. And then all of a sudden you start getting word of mouth and your brand starts to do your heavy lifting for you. And so it's a, it's a virtuous cycle that Jim Collins writes about beautifully as he describes it with the, the, uh, the book, good to great and the whole concept of the flywheel concept. But anyway, I agree. It does, you know, uh, it rises, it rises all boats for sure. Well, you're getting me really excited because you just went down the path of expertise and that's a big area that I see future opportunities around focusing on these vertical areas on these, these, these niches. And when you say niche, you're like, Oh, well that's small. That's going. And I think maybe we can address this concern here. We're going to focus a niche that's going to limit our future growth potential. But in reality, it's going to exponentially open up growth potential because you are going to be viewed as the expert within that vertical and back to your point, it's this virtuous cycle, which is why once I get banking on change, my second book into the market, I'm going to very quickly be rolling into to, to the next title, which is banking on expertise. So I want to get your take on this. What holds financial brands back from making a commitment? You, you mentioned boldness before is required. You know, when you're talking about blue ocean, what is it that limits the commitment? 
it's a terrifying prospect, James, to focus your business, to pick a niche, to commit yourself to a vertical mm. is seemingly a counter entrepreneurial thing to do. I think as many of us, you know, business people, successful business people, leader and leaders and managers, we've succeeded by saying yes to everything that's come our way. Yes, we can, I can do that. Yes, we can do this. For sure, we can do that. My tennis coach, Jesse, said, I, yeah. I believe in ways, not walls. Now, that's a great way to get started, um, but it's not a great way to scale. Because as you said, you cannot – Maslow talked about the, in, the, in, the, in the hierarchy of needs. He talked about once you've got your safety and your, your physiological and safety needs met, the next, the next level up in that uh, pyramid is to belong to a community. You have to belong to a community before the next level is esteem. To be important in the minds and eyes of those community members, you have to first belong to a community. And saying that we serve all types of businesses or all types of consumers – is not belonging to a community. That is not the way to define a community. You've got to define a community in the words and phrases of that community. It cannot be in your own words. But there is a real reluctance because it does feel like an anti-entrepreneurial move to do. I just implore people that they cannot be important. They cannot be perceived as experts unless they make that very inconvenient decision. It's unavoidable. So you know, you're touching on another book. And by the way, we probably just need to get you back on for a conversation as part, <laughs> as part of the by the book series that I do with my operations lead over here, Audrey. Um, we're both big readers. And so we're always talking about the books that we're reading um, and how they apply to, to help financial brands maximize their future growth. And back in 2011, Seth Godin, wrote a book called We Are All Weird, The Rise of Tribes and the End of Normal. It's this idea, like you're coming back to Maslow, community. And I, and I think, you know, that word community, community banking, um, whether you're a community bank or, or, or a credit union, community goes far beyond the physical boundaries now, um, beyond borders, beyond zip codes. And, and back to the point, when, when you think about working within a niche vertical, there are inherent communities. There's like, what is it, the American Dental Association. That's a community that you could tap into and provide your knowledge and expertise through the lens of, of banking to help these dentists grow. And so when, when you think about this, this requires a transformation to a degree of, of seeing that seeing is going to lead to a transformation of thinking, but the thinking doesn't always necessarily apply to action to bridge the get the gap between the thought and then the action. It's the feeling and the emotion. It's, it's the commitment here. And I want to get maybe a bit personal with you because you have done this yourself with your firm. You've you picked a niche to focus on. You've, turned away other opportunities. You said, this is the path that we're going. What was that like for you to make that commitment? Oh, I, I said, it's a terrifying decision. Um, <laughs> you did, lived, I wanna, but let's talk about that. It. Yeah. And as, as, have, as have I, you know, like this is my vertical. Um, but what, like, why, why, why did you do this? You know, what I realized years ago before we before we done this was um 
you know, we built a great business. We had been around for a good long time. We'd served several hundred customers and uh, we built some really neat technology. And a lot of those customers had scaled. They'd made, you know, hundreds of millions, in some cases, billions in savings or, or uh, g- generated uh, billions in, in new profits yeah. as a result of their investment in technology. Even the most singular outcomes uh, did not generate word of mouth. They did not lead us into new introductions. They did not um, kick off that flywheel, the virtuous cycle, whereby running the process of the business, you beget more opportunities that then allow you to grow the business. There was not that virtuous cycle happening in the business. And this, this confounded me for a decade. You know, like I was scratching my head just thinking we need to get better. We need to get better. We need to get better. We need to ask for referrals. If we ask them, then, then that's, that's going to unlock it. I took sales training and then I took better sales training and continued taking sales training. <laughs> and and I, I, I all of a sudden realized, oh, no, this is not happening because of something fundamental about the business. It was due to a lack of strategy. Strategy. You know, yep. strategy is the art of exclusion. It's a very uh, in, inconvenient truth, but it, it's true. Strategy begins by carving away what doesn't fit so that you can you know, commit yourself to what does. And so um, after I realized for years and years, we were not having any word of mouth, we weren't getting you know, as many referrals, in spite of very, very happy customers, I realized our customers had no affinity. They were not in a community. They didn't go to the same trade shows, the, the same events. They, they didn't have any relationship with, with each other whatsoever. You know, another, another way to look at this is to take a scatter plot of your customer base. Look at where they are geographically. Mm. Are they in your backyard or are they uh, scattered across a broad geographic region? If they are in your backyard, it means that they are hiring you not because of your expertise, but because of your proximity. That may mean that you know, your, your proximity is convenient or that they want to hold you accountable to be able to look across you, know, you from a, uh, in a, in a, across a, a conference room table. Yeah. And guess what? Those are not uh, difficult to, to replicate. Your competitors have the, those same exact things that they can offer, the same value that you can offer. If you're competing based on proximity, um, you, that is not a basis for competition. However, if you see that your customers are distributed across a wide geographic area, it means that they're willing to forego proximity for something else. And that is a sign of a company that has made this bold decision to commit mm. itself to something that is hard to build, which is a brand. And, and to do so, you've got to have a strategy. Now, you don't have to you – know, I, I decided to burn the bridges. I, I did that for personal reasons. Uh, when, I, when I made this transition many years ago, like we, we burned the bridges to hold ourselves accountable. And it was not a popular decision. It was not an easy one. But by God, it was absolutely – uh, absolutely the right one because now we have a community that we belong to and we've got friendships and relationships that want to see us succeed. We've got people that we can serve and support. We've got ways to focus our efforts and investments that before we made this decision, we never had. When when did you burn the bridges here? And, I'm, and I want to just put a caveat for the dear listener listening right now. We're not advocating that you go out and you do this bridge burning today or tomorrow. But the reason I'm asking is I had to do the same exact thing 
for my firm. And this happened in 2012. Um, and my marriage was like on the rocks. And it, there was a whole thing that I had to call in some outside help. I couldn't do this alone. Like I needed some external perspective, some external guidance from someone who has helped other firms like mine show me the way forward. So I'm curious, when when was this timing just for if, if, if for, for me, just for context here, because it's a, it's, a it's a great story. We did this in 2019 uh-huh. after uh, a, you know, realizing that in 2018, we had served a, a concentration of clients in financial services. So we had already started working in, uh, in financial services. We'd also done a lot of work in CPG and e-commerce and transportation, logistics, life sciences, healthcare, oil and gas, et cetera. So it wasn't um, just picking something out of a hat. It was a very intentional and deliberate decision that was built on uh, past experience that we already had. The other thing too, and this is really, I think something that you didn't really touch on from your own journey here of committing to a vertical, but you touched on this earlier when you were talking about doing light usability studies and asking questions, it's pattern matching. When you focus in on a vertical market, you could then in theory go in and, and do research studies to identify patterns that may or may not have anything to do with quote unquote banking, but you're identifying patterns that provide perspective for the vertical at large to provide them a path forward and maybe create a unique positioning or unique point of view that is different from the marketplace. That's tying this back into more of like the blue ocean strategy that we begin the conversation. And as a result, you're, you're creating a bit of a protective moat, right? I, you know, I, I want to use a different word than usability studies. Um, for, for a very particular reason. When I got started, I challenged myself to have 100 conversations with veterans and experts in fintech and financial services. And I wanted to have those 100 conversations as quickly as, I, as my calendar could possibly allow. I mentor a lot of entre- entrepreneurs who are considering a similar move. And if they're not considering a similar move after meeting with me once or twice, all of a sudden they start considering it because <laughs> it's almost all I ever talk about. And the thing I encourage them to do is start with five conversations, then ramp that up to 10 and then have 25 conversations. That all of a sudden, the most important tool to inform this, as you say, pattern matching process is conversations with people who already belong in that community. And guess what? By doing that, you're gonna see opportunities to serve them, opportunities to support them. You're gonna see unmet needs. You're gonna see hair on fire problems. You're gonna understand what they love about their industry and what they hate. Mm. And a byproduct that's going to happen, the more authentically you serve these conversations and relationships, you're just going to start to pick up friends. And then all of a sudden, you're going to look behind yourself and realize, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm part of this community. Yeah. And it just happened naturally. It happened organically. And you're also going to then have an intuition um, around those patterns. You know, intuition comes from inductive reasoning, not deductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is also known as bottom-up reasoning, Mm -hmm. where to do it, you've got to make a bunch of observations. And then what you do is you synthesize those observations into patterns. And then those patterns lead to uh, conclusions. And that 
pulls you up to meaning and making sense. Sense making is the fourth step of inductive reasoning, but you cannot get there until you collect the observations. Deductive reasoning is top down and happens in the complete opposite side. You start with a hypothesis and then you start to structure experiments to prove or disprove it. What we're talking about, James, is going about this in an inductive way. And so don't just listen to you and me talking about dentists, for example, or veterinary offices. It really is about picking, picking a space and having as many, you know, 25 conversations as you can within a concentrated period of time so that you can kick off that intuitive induct inductive reasoning process and get to those patterns that you mentioned. That's a fantastic way to start to wrap this up here. Go out, pick a vertical, maybe pick three verticals and just conversations. Am I hearing you correctly with this so that you can identify patterns through the conversations, through the inductive reasoning, and then use that to help inform future decision-making as you're moving down this journey. If there, if, if someone is listening and they're like, okay, I, I think I can have these conversations. I can have five and then 10 and then 15 and then 20 and then 25. Cause, cause it's all about progress. Once again, not perfection. We're, we're getting momentum. What, what questions should one ask in these conversations within a vertical? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I, I, um, I, I, I will also just quickly say that you'll never be done with these conversations. Once you do 25, guess what? Your next assignment is to do another 25. <laughs> and so this will become, this will become your, you know, a, a full-time focus for a very, you know, for, for the, the founder, the leader of the firm, but great questions to ask are, you know, what, what are the trends that you're observing? Or what do you think, what do you think the future looks like? What do you, what are the biggest challenges you're experiencing right now? You know, there are um, there's so many frameworks and tools in that book, The Blue Ocean Strategy. I'm just going to share one more. It's um, the what they call the, the buyer utility levers. And, and they propose a six stage customer journey that applies to every industry. It starts with the purchase of your product or service. Then you get into delivery and then use the use of your product or service and then supplements. How do you supplement it? with other products or services, then maintenance, and finally disposal. Just take those six stages um, mm. of the customer journey and start structuring your conversations to understand who is, you know, really, which, which providers, service providers, or product providers are really investing heavily in the purchase stage or in the delivery stage or the use stage, et cetera, of this particular category, who excels. Yep. Mm. And this is going to enable you to start mapping the, the industry yeah. and identify those pockets of blue oceans, the uncontested market space that you can create an uncommon and uncontested value proposition that now, because it's targeted on a community, will gain um, brand awareness and word mouth. What a great way, a great recommendation for the dear listener to apply this thinking to move forward and make progress on your own journey of growth. Tim, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, sharing your expertise with all of us today. If someone wants to connect with you and continue the conversation that we've started here, what's the best way for them to reach out and say hello to you? Oh, James, well, thank you so much for having me. I, I, uh, I'm on LinkedIn every day, so feel free to, to connect with me there. Um, you guys are also free to check out the website, praxent.com. 
And uh, we have a contact us page there. Just reach out to us and we'll be right back in touch. But in the meantime, James, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for everything you do for this industry. And uh, I'm looking forward to staying in touch. This has been a lot of fun for sure. Thank you, Tim, for joining me. As always, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. To get even more practical and proven insights along with coaching and guidance, visit digitalgrowth.com insider to join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs. Until next time, be well and do good.